everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be with you. We have a great show for you lined up. We have um, three guests, not one, not two, but three guests. We're going to be talking with Norman Finkelstein. He's going to be joining us later on in the show, um, the political scientist and author Norman Finkelstein. We're also talking with Bethlehem-based journalist Yumna Patel, who's the political director for Palestine for Mondo Weiss. And we're going to be talking to human rights lawyer Dan Kovalik, who was assaulted by John Fetterman's staffer for daring to ask John Fetterman about why he wouldn't sign the ceasefire. So please do, like I always urge you to do, please do like the stream. This is a really important time, I think, to get this show out there because we are debunking a lot of propaganda. As people know, there's a lot of propaganda going around, and this propaganda is really allowing bloodshed. It's allowing for blood to be spilt. It's allowing for Israel to commit war crimes with the support of the United States. And that's only allowed to happen when consent is manufactured, which is what our media is doing. So we're trying to make sure that we undo that as much as possible. Also, please subscribe to the show. You just hit subscribe and then press the bell. And also, if you can afford to become Patreon supporters, that makes this show literally possible. We could not do this show without Patreon. And to do that, you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you join for $1 a month, you make the show happen. That's only $12 a year. And if you join at $5 a month, you get extra content. We've been making everything free because it's so important to have people be informed about what's happening. But we're going to start doing Patreon soon, including one with Norman Finkelstein, where we talk about some interesting, more personal stuff. So everyone give it a thumbs up. Welcome. And we're going to bring on our first guest. As I mentioned, very excited to be speaking to Yumna Patel. She's based in Bethlehem, but she's back in the States, which is great because it means that we can have an interview with her because of the time difference. It's hard to have her on live, obviously, when she's in Bethlehem. And she is the Palestine News Director at Mondo Weiss. So, Yumna, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So grateful that you are available to talk to us. You're someone who's living the experience that we are reading about and watching videos about. You're based in Bethlehem. So I guess I want to start off by asking you about what is happening in the West Bank, what is happening near where you are, as some of the world's eyes are on Gaza, what is Israel doing elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, as you said, I'm not currently in the West Bank, but up until the moment that I did leave a few days ago, things were rapidly getting worse. So since October 7th, which is when the Hamas attack happened and then Israel began bombarding the, the Gaza Strip, which, which hasn't stopped up until this point, more than 100 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank. Almost immediately, the Israeli army put the West Bank under complete lockdown, let's say. And so all of the checkpoints 
in and out of the West Bank, but also within the West Bank. So you're talking about hundreds of military checkpoints along, you know, dotted along the Green Line and also within the Palestinian territory itself were were completely closed down. Wherever there weren't checkpoints, Israeli army bulldozers went in and erected like these dirt mounds to basically block off the entrances and exits to Palestinian villages. So everyone was pretty much cut off with each other for the most part for two weeks. From what I understand from colleagues and, you know, friends and family and people I've spoken to is that those, um, you know, restrictions have slightly eased up, though, though not completely. Um, People are still getting stopped and searched and beaten up at checkpoints. Israeli soldiers are asking to see people's phones. And if there's any sort of trace of what they would consider, you know, anything related to Hamas, which could even just be, you know, like, I don't know, you follow a certain telegram channel to get the news or whatever. There's been reports of them smashing people's phones or beating people up. So that's at the checkpoints and then inside Palestinian towns and cities. There have been raids every single night across the West Bank, certainly in Bethlehem, where I live and where I was up until a few days ago, and even more so in areas like Janine and Nablus, uh, Tulkarim, where you have these active groups of armed Palestinian resistance fighters. And so those areas have seen particularly violent raids as well. So thousands of Palestinians have been rounded up across the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem and thrown in prison. And also Israeli night raids are becoming increasingly more violent and Palestinians are are getting killed um, in these night raids at checkpoints by Israeli settlers as well. There have been dozens and dozens of settler attacks reported over the past couple of weeks. I just uh, received a message from some activists I know in Masafir Yatta who sent us a video that they'd posted of Israeli settlers going into a village there and setting a house on fire and leaving. So that's kind of the situation right now in the West Bank. Massive closures, increased settler violence, army violence, and nightly raids and people just getting rounded up and, and thrown into jail. And that, of course, is not where Hamas is based since people are using the existence of Hamas to justify a lot of Israel's war crimes. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, there certainly is, I mean, a presence of Hamas just in the sense of like people belonging to that political faction. But in terms of who controls the, the Palestinian territories within the West Bank, that's the, the Palestinian Authority that is run by Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah party. Right. And just to be clear, I wasn't justifying, I think people who watch the show know I'm not justifying what Israel is doing in Gaza at all, but just in terms of even the talking point of pretending that their crimes against humanity and war crimes are unfortunate, but they just need to get rid of Hamas. As we can see, Israel's happy to commit war crimes in places that Hamas is not in power. We have some videos actually to show Yamna, can you set up these videos we're about to watch, which you, I be, this is the one that you most recently sent to me. Yeah, sure. So basically a group of Israeli settlers broke into, I believe it is the village of Asfai in Masafariyata. And so Masafariyata in English, it's called the South Hebron Hills. So this is a community. It's more than a dozen small hamlets and villages in the Hebron district of the Southern West Bank. And over the past couple years, the residents there have been under threat of forcible transfer, which has been 
backed and greenlit by the state and is being executed by the Israeli military. And so throughout that process as well, one of the ways that that community is being kicked out isn't just via Supreme Court orders or through the Israeli military, it's also through settler violence. And so this is just a snippet of what that settler violence looked like. Okay. And what are they saying? Um, they're just they're just, you know, telling the guy who's filming, they're telling him to film it, but also to like back away so he's not getting um, you know, hit by the flames. Yeah, so basically what happened here from what we understand is this group of settlers just basically went into the village, set this place on fire and left. This was the same day or a day after settlers had raided another village in Masafirieta and were vandalizing people's homes. And over the past couple weeks, let's say since October 7th, of course, this didn't start on October 7th. I mean, the attacks on Masafirieta have been well documented. But since October 7th, the people there have really been experiencing. If you see in that picture, the people up there, those are Israeli soldiers. And so what I was getting to is that in Masafirieta and across the West Bank, these aren't just these, you know, vigilante settlers who are, who are going around setting things on fire or shooting at people, killing people, vandalizing homes. More often than not, I would feel confident saying 99% of the time this is happening in either full view or full knowledge or even with the active assistance of the Israeli military. And so these armed settlers in the West Bank are protected by the Israeli military. And so when they carry out their attacks against Palestinians, if the soldiers aren't actively assisting them, they're the ones that are either protecting them or when it comes to Palestinians trying to fight back and defend themselves, instead of the soldiers, you know, shooting at or arresting the settlers who are attacking people and setting things on fire, the soldiers will then actually attack the Palestinians who are just trying to de defend themselves. Wow. Let's see some other clips of this violence, obviously trigger warning, but I think it's important to see this. This is taking place in Atuani. And this is, Tawani is also in Masafariata, by the way. So it's the same area. So someone's about to get killed, by the way. And there you see the soldiers are right there, not doing anything. Yep. Yeah, so you basically, exactly. So you have this, so, I mean, I can explain to people a little bit because I've been to Tuani a number of times. We've filmed a whole investigative report there where we talk about sort of the struggle that the residents there are going through. And a huge element of that is the settler violence. So if you saw, you kind of have like down in the valley is where the Palestinians are and up over that sort of hill. So basically you have this settlement that was built on, on the village's land. Um, and so oftentimes you have settlers just come down from that settlement whenever they want and just raid the village, attack people, um, attack their homes. And as we saw, like shoot at them as well. And so 
a lot of settlers in the West Bank are armed, as you saw, and they use those arms against Palestinians who the vast majority are unarmed. And so as you saw in that video, the soldiers were there witnessing what was happening, seeing this armed settler harass and eventually shoot at the the Palestinian villagers and do nothing, did nothing to stop the settler, did nothing to intervene, uh, did nothing to even try and provide assistance to the Palestinian who was just shot under his watch. And so these are Palestinian villages where you have settlers and the army coming in, invading, and just absolutely terrorizing the villagers there. And um, they have no recourse. They have no legal recourse. You know, they can go to the police. The police aren't going to do anything. They're the Israeli police, you know. Um, The Palestinian police have no jurisdiction there. There's no one to help them other than themselves. Uh, When they try to defend themselves, they're, you know, shot at, killed, um, you know, a couple last year, there was this case of a man. He's the father of a prominent activist in Masafirieta. Basically, a bunch of settlers came in to attack him while he was farming on his land. He defended himself, um, and he was arrested. Both of his hands were broken by these settlers in the attack, but he was arrested, and he was kept in jail for a number of days. And basically, there was this whole effort to try and imprison him for, um, I forgot if they were accusing him of like a terror attack or of attacking an Israeli civilian. Thankfully, it was documented on camera where you saw that the settlers instigated the attack. Um, and, you know, he was able to, to get out of jail. But that's what happens when Palestinians try to defend themselves is, you know, even when there's clear evidence that it was self-defense, they're the ones that are subject to interrogations, thrown in jail, and in the worst cases, they're killed. Yeah, and that, by the way, that was a tweet that you had shared with me, Yamna. It was tweeted out by Bet Selim, the Israeli human rights organization. We also have, this is, uh, the, the tweet says, brutal terrorist attack by Israeli settlers near Nablus. Israeli terrorist settlers ambush a group of Palestinian farmers harvesting olives on their own private lands near Al-Sawuya, South Nablus. The settlers approach the farmers and slaughter a 40-year-old man, Bilal Saleh, and then go home with no fear of any consequence. As they enjoy impunity in this apartheid state, settlers in Israel kill with impunity, just like the soldiers that protect them. Yeah, so, I mean, so basically what happens is that this is so right now. This is like October is the, the time of the Palestinian olive harvest, and so this is a time where families, farmers are going out and trying to harvest their olives. The way that the settlements are built is that they primarily are in these more like you could say rural areas of the West Bank, or they're located around these Palestinian villages that don't have, of course, protection from the Palestinian government, but they're also you know tend to be smaller villages as well. And the the areas where the settlements exist, that is an area C of the West Bank where the Israeli military has like full jurisdiction. So what you see during the olive harvest year in and year out is when Palestinian farmers are going to to harvest the olives off their trees, they're attacked by settlers. So there's physical assaults, which in this case turned deadly. You also have the case, and I sent another video of settlers just going and stealing the olive harvest. So they'll go in and they'll just steal the harvest from trees that aren't theirs. 
Other times they'll cut down trees right before the harvest. They'll poison trees so that the harvest is ruined. And these are tried and true tactics of the Israeli settlers that have been going on for, for years. So the Israeli military is watching this happen. And so the Palestinians, these are trees that have been planted there for decades. The olive harvest is this very sacred time. Palestinian farmers, for a lot of them, this is their annual income for their families. And so you basically just have a bunch of settlers who have come in and are stealing the olive harvest and walking away with bags and bags of olives under the watch of the Israeli military who's, you know, doing nothing about this. And so Palestinian farmers, if they want to go out to their lands, they have to face settler violence or they might get there and realize that their harvest has already been stolen. And again, there's, there's really virtually nothing they can do about it. That's disgusting. So that's the context, right? We've seen videos of people getting shot, killed, having their olives stolen. And let's contrast that with what CENTCOM Commander General Joseph Votel said on Face the Nation when he was presented with a fairly good question from Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. I concerned about another front here outside of Gaza. And I know on Wednesday, President Biden said he is alarmed by, quote, extremist settlers attacking Palestinians in the West Bank in, quote, places they're entitled to be. One of Israel's government ministers, Ben Gavir, has video of him arming Israeli civilians with M-16 and M-4 assault rifles. How concerned are you about an uptick and violence in the West Bank. Well, again, I think this goes back to what we just talked about a few moments ago. This the miscalculations. I mean, this 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 is a, it's a tinderbox, and so when you have people that are scared, they have weapons, they're trying to protect themselves, um, then the chances for something going wrong in this, I think, increase. So yeah, and and uh, and the rhetoric has been uh, has been very strong about this, about the vulnerability and the fact that uh, that Israeli settlers in the West Bank are targets. Uh, I mean that's essentially the, what uh, what uh, these uh, these Islamic uh, movements have been saying. So I think it's I think it's an extraordinary uh, critical situation. It could flow flow out very quickly. So Islamic movements have been saying that settlers are being targeted. I mean, I'll give it to him. When you sent me that video, I was truly shocked because I will give it to him that that was such a like that was probably one of the smoothest ways that I've seen someone like completely, completely flip the script and like completely misrepresent the situation, but like so seamlessly. I mean, it's truly crazy that somehow these settlers, and he, I mean, he still used the word settlers, but that somehow like they're being portrayed as like the victims in this situation or like the vulnerable communities. I mean, as... People, you know, as your viewers saw in the clips that we ran at the beginning, the way that the system is set up in the West Bank, and this is widely documented, Palestinian and Israeli human rights groups, reports from journalists like myself who have reported on this extensively. It is a clear system where you have armed settlers that are backed by the state funded by the state. And as I saw, you know, in these videos now, they're being like actively armed as well by the state, by National Security Minister Ben Gavir, who's in charge of the police. You have this system where you have state-backed settlers who are basically given free reign over 
Palestinian lives and property, to attack them whenever they want, to take people's lives whenever they want, take people's property, uh, steal from them, steal their land, um, and they're allowed to do it unabated. And also, you know, with the full protection and sometimes the assistance of the state, and yet somehow, you know, they're being portrayed as as the victims. It's It's... It's truly wild. I mean, in these situations, in that last video you saw, I mean, with, so the woman was saying, like, when you saw those, that settler with the assault rifle just walking in, like, casually, they casually stroll in to these Palestinian communities, and they can do whatever they want. The woman in this video was, like, really scared. She was telling, I guess, the person around her saying, close that door of the house, close the door of the house. I saw another video, and the reason I didn't share it with you, because I wasn't sure if it was a recent video or not, was basically, um, it was a video, again, taken by Betselem, where basically you had this armed Israeli settler, one guy, or one or two settlers, they stopped a bunch of Palestinian cars and they just decided that they were going to start harassing the drivers. They stopped them. They started searching their cars. They started defiling the Quran that was in their car. Um, And there's absolutely nothing that Palestinians can do about it. I mean, you basically have these ideological thugs running around controlling the West Bank sort of as they please, um, and Palestinians, most Palestinians, you know, don't have arms to defend themselves. The only thing they have to defend themselves is like their physical bodies or, or rocks, for example. And when they do use those means, they're also killed or arrested or whatever. Even if, you know, um, they don't defend themselves and then they decide later to try to pursue legal action, file a police report, the vast majority, I mean, I can pull it up quickly um, because the number is escaping me right now. But the vast majority of like police investigations into here, this is a number from Yeshdin. This is an, also an Israeli human rights group. It says 93% of investigations into ideological crimes against Palestinians were closed with no indictment filed. So 93% of cases are just shut, you know, and put in a drawer, swept under the rug, um, and people. So, so that's the reality that Palestinians are living in. But somehow, I guess the Israeli settlers who are there illegally are the victims. Are the victims? Yeah. Are the targeted people? It reminds me of. I mean, it's as ridiculous as saying, like during Jim Crow South, that the whites were targeted. Yeah, or yeah, in in South Africa, it's like the the poor whites are like targeted by these like violent, you know, the violent locals. Yeah, exactly. It's insane. I couldn't believe he did that. Yeah. Let's look. You have, there's also a Ben Gavir clip that you had. Well, it's kind of, I shared that, but it's kind of the one that was shown in there, that report of it's basically like a video of Ben Gavir has basically been going around town to town, settlement to settlement, and actively arming Israeli civilians like within Israel proper and also Israeli settlers in the occupied territory. So I'm not sure like exactly where the location of this video was taken. But this is basically what he's been doing is like, here's some guns, you know. There he is in the white shirt. To give people some context, earlier this year, Ben Gavir, in the midst of all of the anti-Netanyahu, anti-government protests that were happening in Israel, he basically put forward plans to like establish in Israel's National Guard, which would be under his purview as National Security Minister. 
And all these rights groups were sounding the alarm about that back then because basically they were saying like, Ben Gavir is going to, he basically wants to establish his own private militia where basically he's deputizing Jewish settlers in the West Bank and also Israeli civilians to give them arms and send them to go patrol, you know, mixed cities. So where you have a lot of Palestinians or who, who they'll call Israeli Arabs and also, you know, arming more settlers to, to go around and essentially giving them police powers in the West Bank. And so what a lot of folks have been saying, and so at that time, you know, that didn't fully go through. Um, it, they were supposed to like have some committees to talk about it, whatever. Um, but basically what people are saying now is that under the cover of this war, um, Ben Gavir is basically doing what he wanted, which is going around and arming Israelis to... And, and basically giving them these sort of pseudo-police deputy powers to enact violence against Arabs and Palestinians, like, as they see fit. Awful. We also have some video of destruction, of erasure of infrastructure and destruction of homes and stores. It said, Israel raided Janin, killed four Palestinians, leveled infrastructure, and destroyed homes and stores. This is how they destroyed the entrance of Janin refugee camp. And the stone is inscribed with, this is a waiting station until return. Mm-hmm. We also have a picture, if we click on this horse image, this is a landmark, which is made of... Someone else tweeted this. I think this was made of scraps of ambulances that were blown up during the second intifada, I believe. And this was sort of a a structure in Janine, like a symbol um, of, you know, resilience, et cetera. And so there's, I think the other picture in that tweet is like an Israeli army bulldozer, like hanging onto that and driving through the streets with it. Yeah, there it is. That's so disgusting. What these images show, right, is that when Israel's going in and raiding these like refugee camps first, let's think about that, right? So the areas where they're raiding. Which is what Janine is, right? Exactly. The areas where a lot of the areas where the Israeli army is raiding and bombing in Gaza, but also raiding in the West Bank. These are refugee camps. So these are like the descendants of Palestinians who were displaced by Israel in 1948 And now four or five generations later, their families are still living in refugee camps because Israel has refused to let them return to their homes. And so what happens when Israel goes into the Janine refugee camp and also to like the Nur Shemis refugee camp in Tulkarim, there was a very deadly raid last week. I believe uh, 13 or 14 Palestinians were killed in a single raid there. That's in Tulkarim in the West Bank. So when they go in, you know, they're not just... um, killing people, right, and and injuring people. They're also destroying infrastructure. And so Israel will say, like, we're destroying terrorist infrastructure, right? But what you see there is, like, they're actually destroying, um, they're destroying civilian infrastructure. They're destroying any sort of semblance or, let's say, symbols of, like, hope and of resilience as well. And this is what's happening in Gaza. You know, we say, like, oh, we're destroying, you know, terror infrastructure, we're destroying terror infrastructure, but the way that, you know, Israel bombs uh, roads leading to hospitals in in Gaza, it does the same thing. It bulldozes and completely uh, rips up the roads in these refugee camps as well. And it's a tactic to basically um, just completely 
um, you know, obviously destroy civilian infrastructure and completely like destroy people's spirits, right? So that, you know, we're not just coming in and arresting people or killing, you know, these fighters. We're also going to destroy your homes. We're going to destroy the place that you live. We're going to make it unlivable. And that also, you know, sows the seeds of, or the attempt is to try and sow the seeds of discord, right, within the community. Is like, look, you harbor these, quote, terrorists, or like you harbor these resistance groups, you harbor these fighters. So now the whole community has to pay for it. Something It's called collective punishment, and it's illegal under international law. Which somehow people are still defending, and people really seem to be absorbing this talking point, like, what is Israel supposed to do? As if there's nothing else that they can do except for bomb hospitals. Right. People are so brainwashed. I want to also ask you about what it is that Hamas is asking for and trying to achieve and trying to negotiate. I know there's a a prisoner swap. We actually have video uh, of three captives being held by Hamas right now. And let's take a look at that. And then I'm going to have you respond to it. And also tell us about the state of Palestinian prisoners being held by Israel. They're in captivity, so obviously it's not clear how much, you know, they would be saying on their own, but I, I don't, it's not like they're making a radical political critique of Zionism. They're not like rejecting the state of Israel. They're just saying he failed, which a lot of Israelis think. They point out the army wasn't there in large part, right? That's because the army has been hanging out with the settlers. Right. And she's saying, get us released. Yeah, of course, like we don't. Like, you can't say how much of it was under duress or not, but I think, like, her emotions are palpable, right? I mean, that's, like, a that's a very emotional plea. And that's a critique of Netanyahu. And that's not the first critique we've seen, right? When the two elderly women were released, time is flying, I don't even know, last week, or was it the week before? When the two, I think it was last week when the two elderly Israeli women were released— One of them had a press conference, you know, saying she went through hell, et cetera, but she also blamed Netanyahu and the Israeli government for their security failures, right? And ignoring warnings. Exactly. And forgetting people in the situation that they were in. So after this emotional plea by these women who we just watched, I want to pull, I pulled up this article from Haaretz where basically Netanyahu's response 
to this video was he called it psychological and cruel propaganda by Hamas slash ISIS. That was what Netanyahu had to say, right, about like his own citizens and his own civilians, like pleading, pleading for, um, I don't think that's not the article, but I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, basically, you know, this very impassioned plea to to release them and also blaming blaming Netanyahu's government for the situation. And he basically decided to call it propaganda. And earlier on, when Hamas had come out and said, like, we are ready to release hostages, they, when they said, we're going to release, we want to release these two elderly people or these elderly couples just purely on humanitarian grounds for their, you know, for their health. Uh, we don't want anything for it. Israel called it mendacious propaganda. Um, and so... It's there's a lot of different reports out there. Basically, every day there's sort like right now um, there's reports that like a U.S. official and Israeli officials have gone to Qatar um, for more discussions around hostage releases, etc. Um, but what has I mean over time we have seen Hamas make a number of statements around the the captive saying you know we'll release the um, civilian captives that we have. So anyone who's like not soldiers or not the army that we took will release them uh, it for a release of, you know, Palestinian women, children, and sick prisoners who are being held in Israeli prison. They've also said we're willing to do an all-for-all deal that will release all of the, you know, all of the prisoners that we have in Gaza for, you know, the thousands of Palestinian political prisoners being held in jail. And so outright, I mean, Netanyahu and his government have largely, if they've either called it Hamas propaganda or have just refused um, to, to engage or to, you know, Hamas has also said that they would release, I, I, I think they said they would release civilians, some of the civilians in exchange for, um, an urgent shipment of fuel. Again, Israel has said that's propaganda. Like we're not a drop of fuel is getting into Gaza, um, you know, because they say it's going to get in the hands of Hamas, even though like the hospitals need fuel. People, the the power plants, the power plant needs fuel. If people want to get clean water and through their pumps, that also requires fuel as well. Um, so the millions of civilians in Gaza are in desperate need of fuel, but you know Israel has outright refused that, even if it meant releasing some of their hostages. And so there have been, uh, we've seen some protests in Tel Aviv as well inside Israel from these Israeli families, the families of the hostages, um, their friends and supporters as well. They themselves are saying, release, you know, everyone for everyone. There was this call by the families of the hostages. They release all the Palestinian prisoners. We don't care. We want, you know, our, um, like, our family to come home. So at the same time, we've seen, like, Israel has, you know, they're tweeting all the time, like, what what what's it they like bring them home, like, bring them home. Like, we want them to come and home. And here they're tweeting, no hostage left behind. No hostage left behind. Like, but so at the same time that they're sort of tweeting that out to the public. Oh, right. Yeah. You tweeted that. You tweeted out this you. Yeah. Like they're actively refuting um, or like refusing to engage in sort of any like mass hostage negotiations, saying that it's like calling it Hamas propaganda. And so there is definitely this growing frustration, certainly as we saw in that video amongst the Israeli hostages themselves and also their families who are, you know, in Israel 
and many of them are naturally very critical of Netanyahu. Um, but he's, of course, you know, not listening to that and just calling it, you know, crazy Hamas propaganda. And have instead, they've, you know, just doubled down on their phase two of the war, which is um, a ground invasion. So, yeah, I mean, we know that these people like Netanyahu or Amy Schumer, like they don't care about Palestinian lives. That's obvious. But the fact that they don't even care about these Jewish lives, which we thought that they cared about, they definitely care about them more than Palestinian lives, but they, it's more about bloodlust yeah, and ethnic cleansing than it is about saving lives. Right, because, I mean, there is, it, it's clear that, like, the question of, you know, prisoner releases and prisoner exchanges have, like, been put out on the table since day one. I mean, it's largely under, I mean, that was the main motivation, right, by taking in a lot of these these captives um, was that they would be exchanged for Palestinian prisoners in the future because, you know, history has shown that obviously Israel values the lives of, or, you know, the world, let's say, values like one Israeli life over, you know, hundreds of Palestinian lives. In the past, one Israeli soldier has been uh, released in exchange for over a thousand Palestinians. And so that has, you know, that was the goal and that's been on the table since the beginning. But as that woman said, they've been in captivity for more than 23 days and there's been no real effort at a large um, scale, like a prisoner exchange. Someone just sent this to me and you can't not look at it. Because as we're talking about this prisoner exchange and we're talking about Israel inflicting these crimes against humanity, these war crimes, and somehow they still see themselves as the victim, and so do other people. And this is an image of the Israeli UN delegation at the United Nations Security Council, and they're wearing Stars of David, like what you had to wear as a Jew during the Holocaust, which is just so... It's such rank weaponization of trauma and tragedy to justify the mistreatment of others. And I, I, I mean, I'm, my family's Jewish. I had relatives who were killed in the Holocaust. And this is not what you're supposed to be doing with their legacy. Just disgusting. Like, who do they think they're kidding? Yeah. And it, at, during that stunt, um, Gilad Erdan, who is the like the Israel's whatever ambassador to the UN, he's in that photo. He is basically saying that he said those who call for an immediate ceasefire are ultimately asking to tie Israel's hands and keep Hamas's rule in Gaza. And that's been like now that's the major sort of like talking point that's been adopted, not just obviously not just by Israeli officials, but also by US officials. I think we saw Hillary Clinton say this, was it yesterday, right? And now, like, actively, um, not criminalizing, but, like, actively demonizing. So, like, now if you're calling for a ceasefire, like, that's even a horrible thing, right? So now even, like, calling for a ceasefire after more than 8,000 Palestinians, including more than 3,000 children, like, DCI, uh, Defense for Children International, released a report today saying that basically one child in Gaza is killed every 10 minutes. Save the Children said more more children in Gaza, like the amount of children that were killed in Gaza over the past three weeks is more than the annual number of like the, the, the annual average of children killed in conflict zones around the world since 2019. 
And like, but now anyone who's calling for a ceasefire is like a terrorist supporter, Hamas apologist, whatever. It's disgusting. What can you tell us about is Israel's prisoners, the Palestinian prisoners that Israel's holding? Yeah. So, I mean, so as I mentioned earlier, since this whole thing started, Israel has been conducting nightly raids in the West Bank, rounding people up. And so I believe the number is around 1,500, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 uh, Palestinians from the West Bank and East Jerusalem have been rounded up and thrown in jail. In addition to that, you have 4,000 Palestinians uh, from Gaza. So they were working as day laborers in Israel. So basically they got stuck when this whole thing happened and, you know, no one was allowed to go back to Gaza Israel rounded all of them up, threw them at checkpoints in the West Bank. So people and Palestinians of the West Bank sort of took them in, uh, in Ramallah and Bethlehem and different cities. They were sleeping in different community centers. Then Israel went back and started rounding up these these Gaza laborers as well and throwing them in jail. Um, so over the past couple weeks, I think um, the Palestinian prisoners' rights group said that Israel doubled the Palestinian prisoner population in like two weeks. So before this all started, before October 7th, I believe the the number of Palestinian prisoners was around 5,200. Of those 5,200, you had over 100 children, a couple dozen women, and then you also had over 1,000 Palestinian prisoners who were administrative detainees. So administrative detention is this policy uh, used by Israel almost exclusively against Palestinians to basically imprison them without charge or trial. So like, let's, let's talk about the idea of hostages, right? Just like you're getting, you're getting kidnapped from your home, uh, taken to a foreign place, whatever, and held there against your will. Israel had about a thousand of those, including children, before this all started. So administrative detainees, they're taken from their, their homes are raided in the middle of the night. They're taken from their homes. They're blindfolded, handcuffed. They're beaten up along the way. They're interrogated without the presence of a lawyer. That also goes for Palestinian children who are arrested. They're interrogated without the the presence of parents or lawyers for days on end. And then with administrative detainees, basically these are people um, that, you know, if basically if Israel wants to imprison you, but it doesn't have any evidence against, any solid evidence against you, you have not committed a crime and it can't prove that you committed a crime, but they treat you as a threat. They see you as a threat. They can throw you in administrative detention. So you're not officially charged. You're never given a trial and you are put in jail for indefinitely, for renewable periods of like three to six months. So maybe you get handed down an administrative detention order of three months. Once three months is up, they can renew it again and they can keep renewing it. And people spend years in administrative detention without ever having committing, like ever having committed a crime or ever even being charged with anything. And so there were around 1,000, 1,200 Palestinians in administ- administrative detention before this started. Now you have upwards of 5,000 Palestinians, so that's including the Gaza laborers, as well as Palestinians from, um, from the West Bank and East Jerusalem who have just been rounded up. So anyone affiliated with Hamas, anyone from Gaza, 
um, anyone remotely perceived to be a threat uh, is being thrown in jail. And the vast, vast, vast majority of these people have n- they've not been charged. Um, so they're just sitting in jail without any any charges against them. And so far, two Palestinian prisoners who had recently been arrested, including a senior Hamas official in the West Bank, um, they've died in prison, in Israeli custody, and their families don't know what happened to them. No one knows what happened to them. Um, were they tortured to death? Were they beaten to death? No one is clear on what happened. Um and so that is what is is happening right now. And even in cases, we've heard a lot of stories over the past couple of weeks where like Israeli forces will come to your home to arrest you. And if they don't find you, they will take someone. So like if they don't find a man, they'll take his wife, they'll take his kid, they'll take his dad, they'll just take members of their family and then threaten them and say like, well, if, you know, if your husband doesn't show up, then like you're going to stay in jail. Or if, you know, your son doesn't turn himself in, then so I don't know what you would call that, you know, but that is basically what's been happening in the West Bank for the past couple of weeks. And of course, this is something that's been happening for for decades and decades. And I just want to add also, like when we talk about Palestinian prisoners. So the the other argument is like when we talk about hostage exchanges or prisoner exchanges, the argument is like, why would we exchange innocent Israelis for like for convicted terrorists? Right. So, you know, first of all, again, over, you know, let's say a fifth or a quarter, if we wanted to add up between the Palestinians who are there without any charge, the women and the kids like they make up around a quarter of the Palestinian prisoners, right? Um, But even then, the Palestinians who are charged with crimes, you know, they are tried in Israeli military courts. They're tried in a military court system that has a 99.7% conviction rate against Palestinians. They've been described by human rights groups as kangaroo courts. Basically, the system is designed in a way to like anyone who comes through there, whether it's a 12-year-old kid that's been throwing stones or a a, a Palestinian who has has killed an Israeli soldier, for example, they're they're tried and, um, and prosecuted by Israeli military prosecutors and judges in a system that is literally designed um, specifically for them and in a way that makes sure that they're, they're put into jail. It's so gross. And no one ever talks about this, obviously. Right. Cause it's like Palestinian prisoners are like, I don't know, it's like a taboo subject, right? Because uh, there's this perception that, Oh, they're all terrorists. You know, these high security prisoners that have like killed Israelis and killed Israeli soldiers. Um, but no one, you know, no one talks about the system like in which they've been imprisoned or prosecuted or the, the thousands of Palestinians who are in jail, like without ever even having a day in court. By the way, I just want to clarify some, I don't have any issues with people who follow the Jewish religion, but Zionism is another thing. Yes. Zionism has nothing to do with being Jewish. There are anti-Zionist Jews. You're listening to one right now. The people who have been organizing the protests against what Israel is doing in the United States has been mostly Jewish voice for peace. But that's what is so disgusting about Israel is that they pretend to speak for all Jews and also pretend to 
protect Jewish safety, and they use the never again. They don't care about never again. They only care about never again to Jews. They're certainly happy to engage in ethnic cleansing of other people. So it's really quite disgusting. Yamna, what else do you want to make sure people know about? You had a great article about the witch hunt that is taking place right now in Israel. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I wrote this piece, um, I think, again, I've lost track of time, but I think maybe it was last week or the week before that we published it um, in Mondo Weiss. Basically, so in addition to everything that we've talked about that's happening in the West Bank, there's also this witch hunt that is happening uh, inside Israel and in occupied Jerusalem. So for people that don't know, there are around close to 2 million citizens of Israel who are Palestinian. Um, And then you also have around 400,000 Palestinians living in occupied Jerusalem because of the way that Israel's apartheid system uh, works. They don't have Israeli citizenship. They're considered permanent residents, and that residency can be revoked by the Israeli state at any time. But basically, you're talking about, you know, 2.5 million Palestinians between citizens of Israel and people who live in Jerusalem. They're much more entrenched within Israeli society than Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are. So you're talking about, you know, they work in the same hospitals or the same, you know, Palestinians who are um, licensed by the Israeli Bar Association. Like you have Palestinian and and Israeli lawyers like working together. You have, uh, you know, university students. You have a lot of Palestinian university students at different Israeli universities. And so this is a huge sector of Israeli society. They make up around 20% of the population. They have been, since this all started again, since October 7th, they've been, you know, there's this whole other battle going on of surveillance and censorship and targeting and harassment against Palestinians uh, by like Israeli society. So by their fellow students and their coworkers and their colleagues, and also by the state itself, where basically people are being targeted um, for, for their posts on social media. And so we're not talking, and so anything that's considered like supporting terrorism or praising Hamas um, is not just getting, it's getting Palestinians fired from their jobs. Uh, it's getting them suspended and expelled from their universities. It's also landing them in jail. The Israeli police is going after them as part of their like fight against terror. Um, but the thing is, and I spoke to I spoke to lawyers, I spoke to doctors, I spoke to university students, I spoke to like rights groups in Israel as well, um, who are saying that a lot of the people that are being targeted, um, like the posts in question, are not like you know, they're being thrown in jail for terrorism, right? So you would think they would be posting like, I support terrorism or I support Hamas, whatever, which would in Israel would qualify as like supporting terrorism. These are people that are getting thrown in jail simply for like following certain pages on social media. So people have been getting suspended from university or fired from their jobs just for like following Eye on Palestine or for liking like news updates about Gaza Uh, People have been suspended for even like posting quotes uh, from the Quran. Like that singer, right? Yeah, exactly. So there was a famous Palestinian singer who like, she posted a link to uh, like a charity who was raising money for humanitarian relief in Gaza. And she also like posted a verse to the Quran and she was arrested by the Israeli police. Um, At the same time, so this just shows the double standard, right? So at the same time that she was arrested for like supporting terrorism, um, she was actually facing 
like a targeted harassment campaign online. She was doxxed basically by these right-wing Israeli groups and they published her information, her husband's information, their home address where they worked. And they were getting these very real death threats um, which they reported to the Israeli police. And the Israeli police did nothing about that, but they went and arrested her because of her posts about like a Gaza charity. And so you have dozens and dozens of cases of Palestinian university students, again, workers, lawyers, um, also being arrested and disbarred. I mean, the Israeli Bar Association itself is like reporting the Palestinian lawyers who are posting anything about you know, the current situation, they're report the bar association is reporting them to the police. So like, these are the upholders of the law, right. In Israel. And they are the ones that are enabling this witch hunt against Palestinians, like simply for just liking posts about the news or like any sort of expressions of their Palestinian identity. So the people we spoke to are really scared. People are scared, obviously of losing their jobs they're scared of getting like doxxed and harassed online. Um, and they're also scared of going to jail because the Israeli police is like are parading these arrests. You know, they've at the time when I reported that story, which was at least a week ago. I mean, the Israeli police had said they arrested like had arrested around 63 people. But that number surely has has gone up. Um, and so that is what is also happening to, to Palestinian, and these are citizens of Israel. So they carry Israeli citizenship. They carry an Israeli passport, et cetera. But this is what people have been saying for years is that even the Palestinians with Israeli citizenship are treated as, as second-class citizens. They don't have the same rights as, as Jewish Israelis. And so basically on every front, of course, like in Gaza, people are being ethnically cleansed and Israel is carrying out an act of genocide there. In the West Bank, you have you know, people being targeted by the Israeli army and the settlers um, and in Jerusalem and, um, you know, in Palestinian communities of Israel, you have those people being um, targeted by the police and their fellow, like their co-workers. It's very much one person described it to me as like, it feels like the thought police, you know, where basically like you can't, you're scared, like you're scared to even have conversations in public because if someone overhears you, they can like call the police on you and you can get arrested simply for like expressing sympathy for Gaza. And so like on every single front, Palestinians like in Palestine are being attacked. And then of course we know that's also like extended to the diaspora as well. You have Palestinian students on campuses in the U.S. and also like, um, you know, solidarity groups in the U.S. who are being demonized and criminalized by their universities um, and that are being doxxed by like right-wing groups in the U.S. as well. And so there's like a concerted effort across the board, not just to like enact violence against Palestinians, but also to shut up and shut down anyone who's talking about this. There's also a story going around. I don't know if you heard about this. I think actually we talked about this, that people are saying that Hamas people threw a baby into a fire. Yeah. It's worth noting that that story is something that actually was done by Zionists to Palestinians in 1948. There's actually recorded history of that. And there hasn't been any evidence provided about that story. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I saw on Twitter was that, like, a, an Israeli journalist from Haaretz actually, like, discounted that claim and said there was no evidence on it. 
but people are just saying it is. And what about this new plan, by the way, the plan that Israel has for moving the people of Gaza? We had reported on this on Mondo Weiss, basically about these leaked documents from Israel's interior ministry, I believe it was, basically that there was a plan or one of the suggested plans. There was a leaked document from one of the Israeli ministries, and it was also this plan put forward by this Israeli think tank, which was then deleted, basically to push the Palestinians from Gaza into the Sinai. And recently, here's the original article that we published, actually. Um, And so now, uh, I think just today or yesterday, like the documents themselves were were leaked, so people were looking at that. But basically, yeah, um, like they're, this is the plan, you know. It's a, an active plan for, for ethnic cleansing, and Palestinians have been saying this from the beginning. You know, they want to—this is why, you know, they're moving people south. They're completely carpet bombing the north. Then they're also bombing the south, and it is an open, stated Israeli plan that they want to basically make Gaza unlivable and force Palestinians into tent cities in the Sinai and basically get rid of them. And the the funny, I mean, it's not funny at all, but um, I think, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, I'm sure you saw like the one of the Israeli military spokesperson like sent a message to Gazans where he was, you know, his English message. Delivered in a, a message in English after the internet was cut. Exactly. Saying like, you know, we want all of you to go to Gaza, or go to the South, whatever. And I can't remember if it was him or if it was separately from Naftali Bennett, who was former Israeli prime minister, basically one of them had said, we'll temporarily send them to the Sinai or temporarily send them back, like send them south until it's safe for them to go back north. And then like, we'll let them go back north. But Israel has a very recent history of doing the exact opposite of that, you know, doing one part of it, which is force, you know, pillaging, burning down, destroying people's villages and forcing them out. But it never let them back. You know, 70% of Gaza's population are refugees. Like 70% of the people that are now being displaced in Gaza are refugees from the Nakba in 1948. And now there's, again, this plan to repeat that same catastrophe and the same ethnic cleansing of 75 years ago, which is like send them all into the Sinai. Right. Yeah. And just reading... Part of what this document says, the report from the think tank, which is basically advocating for ethnic cleansing, says there is need for an immediate viable plan for the resettlement and economic rehabilitation of the entire Arab population in the Gaza Strip, which sits well with the geopolitical interests of Israel, Egypt, USA, and Saudi Arabia. In 2017, it was reported that in Egypt, there were 10 million available apartment units, of which half were built and half under reconstruction. For example, in two of the biggest Cairo satellite cities, October 6 and Ramadan 10, there's an immense number of built and empty apartments under governmental and private ownership, as well as empty lots for building that would in total suffice the housing of about 6 million residents. So there is no doubt, going down to the bottom, there is no doubt that in order for this plan to be enacted, many conditions need to exist in parallel. At the moment, these conditions exist, and it is unclear when such an opportunity will arise again, if at all. So jump on it. 
jump on that ethnic cleansing. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to send you um, like a, a thread where they like break down the the Ministry of Intelligence, like that document. Um, and basically, I mean, the way that they outline the phases of this ethnic cleansing in this uh, intelligence ministry like memo is exactly what's happening. So they say like for the, you know, it outlines four stages. Like the first stage is a call on Palestinian citizens to vacate North Gaza and allow for land operations, which is what's happening to like what's happening right now. Two is sequential land operations from North to South Gaza, um, which, you know, Israel is saying they will, they'll do that. Three is leaving routes open across Rafah, which is in the south of Gaza. So this establishment of what we've been hearing going around is like establishes humanitarian corridor, you know, to let let Palestinians out if they want to go out as if that's like a good solution. Um, it's like, you know, Palestinians in Gaza like do not want to be ethnically cleansed. They don't want to be forced into another country, you know. So establishing a humanitarian corridor while the carpet bombing continues is like not what is actually in the best interest of Palestinians. It's in the best interest of this ethnic cleansing plan. Right. And then number four, established tent cities in Northern Sinai and construction of cities to resettle the Palestinians in Egypt. So, you know, very similar to what was said um, in that think tank piece, but yeah, the plans it's fully laid out. It's all out there. You know, this isn't just some, you know, chatter online or whatever and some media reports. Like this is um this is like a fully thought out plan. Um and we see the first stages of it already like verbatim or, you know, play by play is what's happening right now in Gaza. Wow. Well, let's see. There's one question for you. Elliot wants to know question. I'm wondering how Palestinians view Hamas's original attack. Look, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, how do Palestinians view Hamas's original attack? I mean, to be completely honest, and I don't want to speak for Palestinians or for for all Palestinians because there's definitely you know a wide breadth of of opinions, but largely the way that Palestinians viewed what happened on October seventh, it was. It was something that people like really never thought possible. People really thought in Gaza and outside of Gaza that the status quo of, you know, Gaza caged in in this prison for 16, 17 years, um, Bantu stands in the West Bank, uh, increased settler and army control, et cetera, that that status quo was going to be impossible to, to break out of. A lot of the Palestinians from the, those who I had spoken to as well in the West Bank and, and even in Gaza themselves had started to view Hamas um, in the same way that Palestinians in the West Bank view the Palestinian Authority as sort of this just like political body, you know, who wants to, who's willing to take like certain, you know, humanitarian or political concessions in, in exchange for maintaining power, you know, so giving people work permits, uh, you know, relaxing the siege in some areas, et cetera. And people had largely thought that, you know, Hamas and, and other groups in, in Gaza had largely um, forfeited any sort of armed struggle. And so when people saw happen on October 7th, it, I think it shattered those, 
those ideas that the status quo, that like that was it, and that was the permanent reality that the Palestinians, particularly in Gaza, were um, were going to to be forced to live with for for decades on end. And and I'm not talking about. And we published we published an article by a Palestinian author pretty early on when all of this happened. And I think she put it best. And she said, and I'll try and pull it up, but she said, like, you know, Palestinians, we're not celebrating death and we're not celebrating like the killing of people, but we're celebrating, um, you know, hope and this idea that like our subjugation and colonization and being kept in a prison that like we actually can break through that. And that like a different future is possible. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that that kind of sums that up. Anything else you want to make sure people uh, know about? Because you've been so generous with your time. Thanks so much. Really uh, appreciate thanks. it. I, I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I think we, I think we covered a lot, um, I guess. And I'm sure you're like your viewers already, um, you know, they know this and they have their what's about them, but there's just like a very clear concerted effort, you know, within the media and what we're seeing in the U S as well to, um, to like constantly, um, like reshape and shift the narrative, you know? So every few days we're seeing new claims from the Israeli military, et cetera, about like the heinous acts of Hamas. Um, and we're seeing the focus still on Israeli lives, et cetera, while this this genocide is happening on Gaza. And we're seeing our politicians in the U.S., um, even politicians who we once considered to be, you know, like progressive, um, you know, not not calling for a ceasefire. And so there's there's like this very clear concerted effort to really push this one line, which is Israel's genocidal warpath um, through the media, the politicians, et cetera. But, um, yeah, so I would just encourage people to, you know, search for maybe other alternative sources of media, like this show, for example, like Mondawise. And also, you know, I think a lot of what's happening naturally is very disheartening, the genocide that we're seeing happening in Gaza. But like you mentioned, the protests that we're seeing, um, you know, in New York and D.C. and by, um, you know, different Jewish and Palestinian groups around the world is... Um, a cause for, for hope that I think, I hope that, you know, the people, the people of the world definitely do not agree with the mainstream media or with the politicians. And so I hope that we will see some sort of change and that some sort of, um, you know, some sort of pressure put on our government to do something. Um, we are going to be going to the protests in DC this weekend. I think Mondawai signed on as a sponsor. So I hope that we'll see some people there. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Yamna. And make sure you follow her, Mondo Weiss, and see her movie on the brink about Janine. Thank you. Thanks, Yamna. We're going to bring on back onto the show, big friend of the show. Everyone here loves him. Everyone's always excited to have him on. Political scientist and author Norman Finkelstein. Hi, Norman. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. So... Do you want to talk about, uh, it's up to you, we can talk about this Atlantic piece saying that Israel is not settler colonial. Should we start with that? Or do you want to just respond to the latest? Look, I'm happy to do what you like. 
What I would prefer is not to go over old ground, but new questions which I haven't yet discussed with you, and uh, for you to use your judgment about how we should proceed. Okay. However, we should just bear in mind that I've already done many interviews, and we don't want to repeat ourselves. We want to get new information, if that's possible. Yeah. Well, have you addressed the, um, the Atlantic piece? I've not addressed it anywhere. I just received it from you. I printed it out, but I haven't yet read it. I still, I looked at it enough, uh, you know, just skimmed it. I have to look at it carefully. What strikes me about the piece in the Atlantic? And let me just first, let me just tell people that this yeah. piece it's called um, it's a piece in the Atlantic. It's called the decolonization narrative is dangerous and false. It does not accurately describe either the foundation of Israel or the tragedy of the Palestinians by Simon Sebag Montefiore. Um, and, okay, take it away. Well, as I said, what struck me at first glance is what it reveals, if you'll forgive me, what it reveals about cancel culture and identity politics. What do I mean by that? The Atlantic Magazine, like the New Yorker, like the New York Times, are the hip venues of woke politics. So people like Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ibram X. Kendi, they got their start in Atlantic Magazine. And what's so striking to me is that whenever there's a moment of truth, be it the Ukraine or now uh, Gaza, uh, these proved to be just very conventional cold warrior places where suddenly all of the, uh, the hip identity politics, the hip woke culture, it suddenly vanishes and you're back to the old politics of the Democratic Party. And that to me tells you a lot about what woke politics is really all about, that it's not about challenging the system, challenging the status quo, trying to radically remake the world. It's about recruiting a few, as Cornell West likes to put, Dr. Cornell West likes to put it, just recruiting a few black places, uh, excuse me, a few black faces in high places. That's really what this whole woke phenomenon is about. And so leaving aside the articles that have appeared in Atlantic Magazine on um, Ukraine, and now looking at this just from the get-go, just from the get-go, it's just the most recycled, uh, it's just the recycled um, official Israeli propaganda you just read, now I'm not going to limit myself to the first sentence. On the other hand, maybe in another program, we can go through it paragraph by paragraph. But just read, if you don't mind, for your audience, just read the first sentence, the very first sentence. Peace in the, in the Israel-Palestine conflict had already been difficult to achieve before Hamas's barbarous October 7 attack and Israel's military response. Now it seems almost impossible but its essence is clearer than ever. Ultimately, a negotiation to establish a safe Israel beside a safe Palestinian state. Okay, so let's look at that first sentence. 
Hamas's attack is barbarous. Israel's response is just a military response. The fact that Israel is engaged in broad daylight, in real time, in a genocidal war against the, the population of Gaza, that's just this anodine military response. Now, I'd like to just comment on this. First of all, the history vanishes. October 7th, contrary to conventional belief, October 7th wasn't the beginning. October 7th was the climactic act in a long history of the people of Gaza being immured in a concentration camp. It would be as if to say that Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831, that was the beginning. Everything starts at Nat Turner's rebellion, that we just erase, efface the whole history, those 20 years that the people of of Gaza, half of whom are children, 70% of whom are refugees, the 20 years that they've been confined in a concentration camp where nobody can go in, nobody can leave, with the rarest of exceptions, where more than approximately half the population suffers from what's called severe, by humanitarian organizations, it's called severe food insecurity, where half the population is unemployed, and among the youth, 60% of the people are unemployed. That whole history vanishes, and I haven't even mentioned the periodic high-tech military assaults on Gaza, which leave left in the thousands of people dead, hundreds of children killed, infrastructure leveled, homes leveled. Everything vanishes. It's just history begins on October 7th with a barbarous attack and just a anodine military response. The military response now has left about 10,000 people dead, including 3,000 children. That's not barbarous. The military response, which has systematically and methodically leveled, flattened, pulverized the entire economic infrastructure of Gaza and the residential life of the people of Gaza. I think I read, but the statistics by the time even this airs, they're going to be outdated. But about half the people's homes, have, half of the people's homes in Gaza have been pulverized, reduced to smithereens, smashed to smithereens. That's just a military response. That's not barbarous. Now, let me just give you one example, which many people will find appalling. But to me, it just speaks to the reality of what's happened in that corner, that parcel of land. Let's just take one example. As you know, 
Israel periodically launches these high-tech massacres by remote control on Gaza. So if you take Operation Cast Lead, which lasted from January 26th, excuse me, December 26th, 2008, to January 17th, 2009, what Amnesty International called the 22 days of death and destruction. If you just take that example, Israel killed about 1,300 Gazans, including 350 children. Now, what does Israel describe that as? They call it mowing the lawn. That's the phrase that they coined, mowing the lawn. Now, I don't know yet how many children were reportedly killed on October 7th, but the total number, 1,300, is roughly what happened in Operation Castlet. If we go to Operation Protective Edge, which began July 8th, 2014, and lasted until August 24, uh, excuse me, August 26th, 2014, 51 days, about 2,200 people in Gaza were killed, of whom 550 were children. So that's about a little less than double the total number, a little less than double the total number of those killed on October 7th. That was another mowing the law, uh, yes, Israel mowed the lawn a second time, okay? So, imagine the reaction if Hamas said on October 7th, we were just mowing the lawn. Could you imagine the reaction? Can you even conceive the reaction? If very matter-of-factly, they just said, we were mowing the lawn. What the Hamas did is a barbarous act. But what Israel routinely inflicts on Gaza is mowing the lawn. And everybody just smiles at that satanic phrase, mowing the lawn, of which one million of the 2,200,000 blades of grass on that lawn, about 1,100,000 are children. So I, I want to read you, this actually started because I had emailed you in frustration about your advice about how to respond to a certain argument, but it's related exactly to what you're talking about, because I hear what you're saying, and it's so clear to me that what Israel's doing is unnecessary. I mean, that's an understatement and it's a war crime. But I keep hearing people say something like the following. This is an email I got. Um, there's a diff Katie, there's a difference between willful intentional slaughter born of a stated constitution and century old goal and deaths during war. Israel is fighting for its right to exist. It's as nuts for LGBTQ folks to be defending Palestinians where they would be killed as it is for liberal Jews to defend them currently, when their stated goal is to push us into the sea, Zionist or not, 
They hate Jews. They affiliated with Hitler and the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem helped shape him, him being, being Hitler. Um, and yeah, again, difference between intentional slaughter of civilians and casualties of war and Palestinians elected Hamas and allowed them to divert huge amounts of support supplies to their major stated intention, clean Palestine of Jews from the river to the sea. Okay. One second. One just get a book called. Okay. And I'm, I keep bringing this up, everyone watching, and I'm bringing this up to Norman because I keep confronting this from people who are otherwise rational people. Okay. Let's begin. Number one, Israel began the current quote-unquote operation by declaring two things or three things. Fact number one, the president of Israel, Mr. Herzog, he announced that there was no distinction between Hamas and the population of Gaza. He said that they elected Hamas and then they have to bear responsibility. So the fundamental principle of what's called international humanitarian law, IHL, it's sometimes abbreviated, or you can just call it the laws of war. The fundamental principle of the laws of war is called the principle of distinction. Every one of your listeners knows that principle. It's illegal under international law to target civilians or civilian sites, and the only legitimate targets are combatants and military sites. The principle of distinction. On October 8th, the day after what occurred in Israel, uh, President Herzog declared, we don't believe that distinction exists. This rhetoric about civilians. Yes. Every, every uh, person in Gaza is a legitimate target. That's what he did. Yeah, he said they could have risen up against them. Right. They didn't rise up against them. They voted for them. Therefore, they're a legitimate target. So, under by the principle of the laws of war, they have simply effaced, erased the fundamental principle. There are other principles, the principle of discrimination, which I'll get to in a moment, but the principle of distinction, they have rejected it, repudiated it. So, um, you can't make the claim as your correspondent made, that there's a distinction between Israel's, uh, the casualties in Israel which result from war versus what uh, Hamas did on October 7th. Israel itself has rejected that distinction. It is, in this, uh, I'll get into a moment, but it has declared every human being in Gaza including those 1,100,000 children, legitimate targets. Number two, the second principle of the laws of war is called the principles, principle of discrimination. That means you can't indiscriminately fire your weaponry. Now, for example, let's say you have a weapon, let's call it poison gas. 
And poison gas, it can't be controlled. And therefore, it can't, you can't target it in such a way that only combatants will be victim, uh, will be the targets of it. So Israel has clearly, since October 8th, Israel has clearly been firing indiscriminately or bombing indiscriminately or targeting indiscriminately in Gaza. I mean, how can anyone possibly believe that Israel has now dropped more weapons in the first week, in the first week, it had dropped more tonnage of bombs in one week in an area that's shorter than a marathon, and its width is the distance from NYU on West 4th Street to Columbia University on West 116th Street. That's five miles. And Israel dropped more tonnage than all the tonnage that was dropped in Afghanistan in any year of the war. How can anyone possibly believe or conceive that they are being discriminate in their bombing? Even Bernie Sanders, who was periodically issuing statements as I think the pressure became more and more intense on him, the first few statements that he issued, he kept saying that Israel had a right to attack Hamas. Even if that were true, I'm not going to get into that argument, he's maintaining, perpetuating the fiction that they're attacking Hamas. They're not attacking Hamas. Israel, as was revealed on October 7th, hasn't a clue where Hamas is. How could it possibly be targeting Hamas if Hamas had planned this operation for two years, there were at least 2,000 Hamas militants involved, and Israel hadn't a clue? So obviously, they don't know where Hamas is. They have no clue about what Hamas operations or its command, where its command and control centers, as Israel calls it, where its command and control centers are. Israel is quite clearly just indiscriminately carpet bombing Gaza. And finally, lo and behold, today, as my comrade and colleague and friend Jamie Stern Weiner emailed me, Bernie finally wrote today, finally wrote today, he said, Israel has no right to kill thousands of innocent civilians. Bernie, it took you three weeks to notice that? It took you three weeks to notice? Didn't Israel on the first day say we're not discriminating between civilians and combatants? It never occurred to you, Bernie, that Israel was carpet bombing Gaza? That never occurred to you? So, Israel has therefore repudiated, rejected the second principle of the laws of war, 
the principle of discrimination. So contrary, I believe, to what your correspondent wrote, there is no difference whatsoever, none, between what Hamas did on October 7th and what Israel has been doing since October 7th. It's been engaged in the targeted and indiscriminate bombardment of the people of Gaza. And I would just add one other point, namely, let's see, let me see, allow me. And this also, I think, the perceived difference between what Hamas is doing and what Israel is doing, I think, speaks to the strength of atrocity. Um, what's it called? Atrocity. Is it porn? Atrocity porn? Atrocity propaganda? Where you hear these specific stories that don't ever have to be true. But, for instance, with Iraq, it was that uh, Saddam Hussein removed babies from incubators, which we now know isn't true. That was 1990. Yeah. And it was, the story was actually spread by Amnesty International. Amnesty International was asleep at the switch, or as often happens with these human rights organizations, the pressure becomes unbearable on them to uh, toe the party line. Mm -hmm. So whatever the reason was, yes, Amnesty repeated the story about the Iraqi troops stealing the incubators from the maternity hospitals in Kuwait. Or Gaddafi with the Viagra. Well, that, that one, I think, was a little bit sillier uh, in, the, in the great order. Of Maybe, yeah. But, but these things really stick in people's brains and they become emotional about. Well, I, I think there is the disinformation, obviously. And I certainly would take Amira Haas's words. She's very fastidious with facts. She's very professional. I've had my disagreements with her. But on the factual questions, she's, in my opinion, clearly reliable Sometimes she draws inferences, which I think go beyond the facts, but it's clear she's drawing inferences when it comes to facts. And she said that she, she can verify that Hamas committed atrocities on October 7th. The magnitude of the atrocities, the degree to which they were, the deaths resulted from Hamas, um, Hamas, crimes versus it was Israeli uh, fire that caused the deaths of people who were taken hostage or people who were in the buildings where Hamas controlled. I don't think we know. Uh, I happen to be, and I could be proven wrong, Don't uh, uh, I, where I'm speculating, I have an obligation to say I'm speculating. Uh, Hamas is compared to often nowadays purposely to ISIS and other of those kind of nihilistic organizations. I don't think personally that's accurate for the following reason. Uh, if you follow the Hamas is quite close to the Hezbollah. Uh, they have real working relations. And the leader of Hezbollah, Saad Nasrallah, 
he has issued numerous condemnations of what he calls the TAC theories, T-A-K-H-F-I-R-E-F-I-R-I-S, TAC theories. And TAC theories is the is, uh, uh, Arabic term for blasphemers. And he says the tactics of ISIS and kindred groups, those are takfiri tactics, and they're deserving of death. So my inference, which I admit could be wrong, is to the extent that there is a, a solidarity at the political and ideological level between Hamas and the Hezbollah, I find it improbable that they carried, on, carried out acts like beheadings of children and rapes. Now, again, I could be wrong, but I found those uh, allegations from day one, I found them improbable. And we now know, of course, there's no evidence of the beheaded babies, despite the fact that Joe Biden, among others, said there was. Right. Well, Joe Biden said many things where his memory seems to have been faulty, including the fact that he never said he would cut Social Security. Right. <laughs> but atrocities, I know I'm going to go with what Amir Asha says, uh, atrocities clearly or almost certainly did occur. And we also don't know which were committed by Hamas members versus random people. But. Yes, we don't know versus people who broke through the gates and exacted personal revenge. Those are all questions. But I think personally, even if one acknowledges atrocities occurred, I think for us, the challenge is trying to understand them, not to excuse them, right. but to try to understand them and I personally, as you know, in trying to understand them, I, I, I identify with a tradition. And I wanted to see how those who are antecedents of mine in that tradition, how they reacted. And so I looked at what William Lloyd Garrison had to say about the Nat Turner Rebellion. I looked at what Karl Marx had to say when the communards in the Paris Commune and when they executed hostages. I looked at what CLR James had to say about the uh, insurrectionists in Santo Domingo during what's called you know, the Haitian Revolution. And in each case, when you look at it, I also looked at where people sent me um, the accounts of how the, um, the uh, British abolitionists how they reacted during the Haitian Revolution. And I would say in every case that I examined, in every case that I examined, each time those uh, commentators, part of the tradition which I identify, each time they acknowledged, they didn't recoil from the fact that atrocities had occurred, but in each time, they did not then proceed after acknowledging an atrocity had occurred. They did not proceed to then condemn the, as it were, perpetrators of the atrocities. 
they made the distinction, which was the distinction I made on day one, saying, yes, by a dictionary definition, you cannot dispute that atrocities occurred. And if the numbers are accurate, because we didn't really know what the numbers were at the beginning, you remember went from 50 in day one to 100 on day two, and then it wasn't until around a week and a half later that it had grown to 1,300. Um, I said, you know, the, the, you can't dispute, that's a very significant magnitude. But there's a difference between, at least I believe, there's a difference between acknowledging that by a dictionary definition, atrocities occurred, and then the allocating of moral culpability, where I refuse to go to the second step and denounce those perpetrators of the acts. Many people said it made no sense. They said to me, if you acknowledge it's an atrocity, so you must be condemning the perpetrator of the atrocity. I said, well, you know, I think sometimes life is more complicated than that. And as I said, I was very relieved to discover that's the approach that CLR James took. That was the approach that Garrison took. An interesting fact, I was reading last night W.E.B. Du Bois's um, biography of John Brown. And um, Du Bois mentions that Garrison was very condemnatory of John Brown. Mm. He was because Garrison was a pacifist, basically. But he wasn't condemnatory of Nat Turner. That's the interesting point. You see, he understood that John Brown was fair game. He was a, he was a responsible political actor, and who had freedom, right? And Garrison felt he made the wrong choice. By the way. Um, John Brown was very condemnatory of the abolitionists. You know what he used to say about them? I'll quote him. Talk, talk, talk. And he believed, obviously, he believed in action. Du Bois uh, praises both of them. He won't take sides. He sees that Brown is an exalted figure, as are the abolitionists. So he doesn't take sides. But it was striking to me that whereas Garrison thought Brown was fair game, you know, let's say I'll criticize an ultra-leftist or I'll criticize the slogan from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. However, I won't criticize it when I hear Palestinians singing it. I kind of, I get it. I understand it, you know. Uh, and now to just return to the point where we began Israel's leading authority in international law is a fellow named Yoram Dinstein, D-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. And he was the president of Tel Aviv University. And he's written the classic works on the laws of war. And now I'm going to quote him um, in one of the classic works for your listeners and for your correspondent. There is no genuine difference between a premeditated attack against civilians and a reckless disregard of the principle of distinction. So we can agree 
assuming the facts are right, that what Hamas did on October 7th was a premeditated attack against civilians. However, Dinstein goes on to say there's no difference between that and a reckless disregard of the principle of distinction. That means just indiscriminately firing, bombing, missiling, you know. Well, if Professor Dinstein is right, then your correspondent is wrong. There is no difference from the point of view of law and, frankly, of morality. There's no difference between what Hamas did on October 7th and what Israel has been doing since October 8th which any rational person must agree with no margin of error that a perfect description of what Israel has been doing is, quote, a reckless disregard of the principle of distinction, meaning we don't care if they call themselves civilians or they call themselves Hamas. We're targeting them all. Yeah. So I, I think that's what a, a rational conclusion would be. Okay, great. Well, I'll send this to my friend. I should have you both on the show at the same time. I'm happy. She's, a, she, her, she's the, I know that you are obviously the son of, of Holocaust survivors and actual survivors. I know a lot of people use that term, but your parents actually were in numerous camps. Her, her parents fled the Holocaust. Um, and it, it would be an interesting conversation um, to see two people who have very different views on this. Um, and speaking of... Um, the Holocaust. I wanted to show you this, Norman. We, I got this. Someone texted it to me when I was talking to the previous guest, Yumna Patel. And then I'm going to bring on um, our other guest, and I, uh, Dan um, uh, Kavalik, who, by the way, like you, also wrote a book critiquing cancel culture from the left. But um, Brad, can you show this image of uh, of the, I guess, the Israeli ambassador? Um, sorry, the Israel's envoy to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan, slammed the Security Council on Monday, that's today, for failing to condemn Hamas for its ruthless October 7th attack and reiterated Israel's position that, quote, those who call for an immediate ceasefire are ultimately asking to tie Israel's hands and keep Hamas's rule in Gaza. And can you zoom in on this? I just want Norman to see what they're wearing. I unfortunately they're wearing stars of David uh-huh. patches mm-hmm. him and everyone sitting behind him mm-hmm. which made me think of course of your book the Holocaust industry well that's amusing because amusing in fact it's disgusting but we'll call it amusing what's amusing about that is that one of the tenets of what's called the new anti-semitism And one of the principles of what's called the IHRA definition of the Holocaust is, IHRA meaning International Holocaust Remembrance Association, and one of the tenets of their definition, and one of the tenets of the new anti, the claims 
of a new anti-Semitism is you should never compare the sufferings of others with what Jews endured during World War II because that's trivializing and effectively a sacrilege against what happened, a sacrilege of what happened to Jews during World War II. But here come along these Israeli officials and immediately act as if they are now under Nazi occupation and they are marked for extermination. Now, as I said, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge, unless the facts eventually show otherwise, that a atrocity of a significant magnitude occurred on October 7th. But my dear friends, is that the Holocaust? We're always told don't compare the gas chambers, the systematic methodical extermination of Jews. And now suddenly, and probably not one of the most, but certainly a grotesque trivialization of what happened to Jews during World War II. Not to mention the most basic fact. The main argument about the Nazi Holocaust, about what made it such a horror, aside from the mechanics of the Nazi Holocaust, namely the systematic, methodical, assembly-like extermination of the Jews, was the complete innocence of the Jews who met that fate. And the sheer barbarism of those who meted out that fate. But are we really going to compare the people of Gaza and what they endured? Really not since just the past 20 years but 70% of them are refugees or descendants of refugees from 1948. So that had to bear quite a few burdens over the past uh, 75 years. And to claim that Israel is totally innocent. I'm not talking about the people who were killed, but Israel as a state, it's totally innocent that the people who burst through the gates of Gaza had no legitimate grievances because the whole claim about Nazi Holocaust was Jews were wholly innocent. They had, they were just rounded up for who they were, not what they did. Was Israel but Israel wants to pretend that they also were punished for who they were, not what they did. Exactly, but is that a is that an accurate depiction of the motivations or the anger, the fury, the rage? of those who burst through the gates, people who were born into a concentration camp, 
people who had no future, had no past, had no present, people who lost a brother, a sister, a grandmother, a father during Israel's periodic mowings of the lawn. These were just, these were just anti-Semites as a result of their DNA. There was no legitimate grievances there. This pose by these folks in the UN of pristine innocence. They're innocent. You're going to compare your, meaning these Israeli officials, who are conducting a genocide as we speak, you're going to say you were as innocent as my mother's father? You're as innocent as my mother's mother, as my mother's two sisters, as my mother's brother? You are as innocent? You're officials of a state that confined 2.2 million people in a veritable concentration camp. People who had no prospect whatsoever of a life and were filled, consumed by rage and fury at the fact that their lives from the day of birth, their lives had been destroyed. And you want to hear something? Ready for this? They were destroyed just because they were Palestinian. That's correct. They may not have committed any act of good or any act of evil. They were born into a concentration camp. And now these executors of evil of a very high order walk into the UN as their government, of which they are members, are carrying out a mass extermination and they pretend to pristine virginal innocence. It's such a disgusting, grotesque mockery of the Nazi Holocaust for them to place themselves in the same category as my parents' respective families. Now that, I believe, is a real sacrilege. Yeah. Well, thank you for that analysis and opening up like that, because I think that's, I mean, I'll just leave it at that because you just put it so well. But it, it's infuriating to see people who, as you say, are perpetuating a genocide now try to hide behind the Holocaust, as if that should be the takeaway of the Holocaust, <laughs> that we have license to do this. My late mother used to say, it's no accident that Jews invented the word chutzpah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of chutzpah, we're going to bring on our next guest, who the other day had an interesting interaction with John Fetterman. His name is Dan Kovalik. He's a labor and human rights lawyer living in Pittsburgh. He taught international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and he's the author of several books, including Cancel the Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. So welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me. Good to see you, Katie. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. Always great to see the great Norm Finkelstein. I'm, I'm very honored to be with him, of course. So thank you both. Of course. And wanted to just start off by showing this clip of you confronting Senator John Fetterman about opposing a ceasefire. We're going to show the clip, but is there anything that you want to tell us before we show it, set it up? I mean, I'll just say that, okay, so this was a ticketed event in which I had a ticket for. Senator Fetterman was hosting an event for a woman named Sarah Inamorata, who's running for county council. She's a good person. I've already voted for mail-in ballot. Um, uh, But a few of us concerned about Palestine and Fetterman's position on Palestine went there with the intention to discuss with him this issue. We actually did not want to be disruptive because we do like Sarah Inamorato, who the event was for. So it was decided I would just go and try to have a conversation with him about this. And this is what happened. Why aren't you supporting a humanitarian ceasefire? No, I'm with this guy. No, I can talk to him. I voted for him. I'm sorry, this is a democracy. It absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, but kind of, sort of. Why? 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed. Half of children. The Pope's calling for a ceasefire. The UN is called for it. I'm just asking you. You're a good guy. I voted for you. I know you're a nice guy. This is important. Here, can I give you a phone? I asked the question. I asked him a question. He just assaulted him. He just assaulted him. He just assaulted him. He just assaulted him. He was just talking to him. He assaulted him. Great Rolling Stones song, I'm a big by Stones the way. Fan. But, and yeah, cue the Stones. That was awesome. Yeah. But so, who was that? I thought he worked for Fetterman because he said that he had, but he doesn't. I thought he did too. I've now heard he might have been the owner of the restaurant, but he look, he was clearly, you know, talking to Fetterman. I mean, clearly he was you know, at least acting on behalf of what he thought Fetterman wanted at that moment. Um, And as you see, Fetterman certainly didn't stop him um, and never came out to say, you know, hey, sorry, let's talk. And hasn't reached out since then, you know, Um, and neither is his staff. So that's that's it, you know. And this is because he had tweeted that he opposed a ceasefire, correct? Yeah, he's been very vocal about not wanting a ceasefire, you know, he's taking the line that supporting a ceasefire would be basically supporting Hamas and we need to let Israel do what they need to do. And um, he receives, of course, a lot of money from from APAC. Uh, Though, you know, he's been, look, I I don't want to say he's a disappointment because I sound naive, but, you know, he sold himself as a man of the people. He used to be mayor of Braddock, a tiny steel town outside Pittsburgh. 
and he prided himself on trying to rebuild it for the people. And he was one of the people, you know, he wears a famous for wearing a hoodie to the Senate, you know, but not surprisingly, once he became senator, he's, he's just like everybody else. But, you know, I tried to appeal to his decency and humanity, and that, that that's how it went. So Didn't work, though, apparently. And he hasn't reached out. No. And, and, you know, he's made some statements to the press, and what he's said is um, he just tried to distance himself from the guy who threw me out, and, and he said, I'm very good at talking to my constituents even about this issue. And he said that. He didn't say, I'm sorry that that happened or whatever. He just— You think he would be sorry? Yeah. Or at least pretend to be for his own. I mean, this is not helping him politically. So the takeaway from this is never trust adult men in hoodies or in shorts. <laughs> and definitely not in both. Yes. Or, or a guy dressed up like Fetterman. You notice the guy was dressed, the, the guy who threw me out had a fake Yeah, I dressed my men in shorts. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing was absurd. I mean, I. I'm almost embarrassed because the whole thing, it was, co co you know, comedic in a certain way. I thought it was like the big Lebowski or well, something. I, I would say, at the risk of exaggerating, I do believe these protests are having an impact. You see, Bernie's kind of, Bernie Sanders is kind of Biden's left flank. So Biden, the past couple of days, has reiterated Israel has to abide by international law. Then Bernie says, just a little bit to the left, he says, Israel's killing thousands of innocent civilians. And I would think that it's because of, you can't prove it in a one-to-one -one correlation, but the demonstrations, remember, Bernie's Jewish, and that demonstration in Grand Central Station had to have hit home for him. There was no way that that didn't touch him. And the demonstration in London over the weekend, they estimated a million people. You know, that gets back to Biden. That, and also the fact that in Michigan, Arabs are now saying Arabs and Muslims are not voting for Biden in November. And that's a swing state. I think you can't measure it with any kind of precision. But the thing that you did, the demonstrations, it's not what one wishes, the impact one wishes, but it's having an impact. I've had so many odd conversations for example, the super in my building and a painter, because I had some damage from rain, they were in my apartment, and we never talked politics. We talked about the apartment, we talked about other people in the building, never politics. And this time, the super said to me, so what do you think about what's going on in Gaza? And a lot of people are really wondering what is going on there? And of course, the powers that be, they don't like that. They like the politics be, to be decided behind closed doors between them. They're important. They have the Ivy League degrees. And everybody else, they have only one responsibility on November 4th to go and vote. 
and otherwise stay out. But now the people aren't staying out. And uh, I, uh, I'm not unrealistic, but I'm not cynical either. I see there are possibilities here, and we should all try to uh, turn up the heat. Uh, but the, the demonstration in particular, well, the one in London and the one in Grand Central Station was breathtaking. I couldn't get inside because they had closed it off from the subway. So I was in one of the entrances, then they had people leave, then a bunch of us were outside. I would say more than a bunch. It was quite a large number outside who wanted to be inside. I'll just tell you, this is the second time an, an, an event of this sort happened. After 9-11, and I was quite, I was already a mature adult in nine, at the time of 9-11. At the time of 9-11, I thought politics in the United States is going to be dead for the next 20 years that the country is going to move radically to the right, and we might as well just give up. And of course, the leadership did, uh, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, they exploited the opportunity in every manner they could. However, it was a fact that not so long after 9-11, not so long there were the largest demonstrations in world history opposing the entry of the, uh, opposing the war in Iraq uh, in March 2003. And so it told you people were able to bounce back from the shock of 9-11, get their rational bearings, and understand, no, we don't want a war. Now, obviously, it didn't stop the war. But it still was a testament to the capacity of ordinary people to react with shock, react with trauma, but nonetheless, in short order, get their political bearings right. I mentioned that because the second time after October 7th, I did not believe it would be possible to talk to another Jewish person. That was such a shock, the magnitude. I thought, this is it. We're now back to square one. So imagine my surprise, my bewilderment, when I saw that demonstration in Grand Central Station, that young Jews who came from families, I'm sure many of the parents and grandparents, were so outraged by what happened, so furious. And yet the young people, they got their bearings right. You can acknowledge something horrible happened October 7th, but guess what? That doesn't justify what came after. And let's remember what came before. Let's also remember the history that preceded October 7th. And so it was deeply stirring, deeply moving, a testament to Jews in particular, but to humanity in general. The capacity to rationally, as it were, size up the situation 
and to proceed. I saw Jews with their kippah. Yeah, a lot of people were wearing yarmulkes. <laughs> I was flabbergasted. Next week, I'm doing a panel show with a bunch of people, including Roz Pacheski, who is 81 and who was arrested there, and some other young person from Jewish Voice for Peace. They're going to be on the panel, too. And then Orthodox rabbi and a reform rabbi. They're all going to be on this panel I'm doing next week because I want to show people the Jews who are not represented by APAC. But I just wanted to follow up with what you're saying, both of you, about this protest. I wanted to show you what Corinne Jean-Pierre, a White House spokesperson, Corinne Jean-Pierre, was asked about protests critical of Israel. Let's hear what she had to say. She's not quite as appreciative as you are, Norman. Spoiler alert. I think the anti-Israel protesters in this country are extremists. What I can say is what we've been very clear about this. When it comes to anti-Semitism, there is no place. We have to make sure that we speak against it very loud uh, and, be, uh, and be very clear about that. Remember, what the president decided to, when the president decided to run for president is what he saw in Charlottesville in 2017, when we, he saw uh, neo-Nazis marching down the streets of Charlottesville uh, with vile, anti-Semitic, uh, just hatred. And he was very clear then, and he's very clear now. Uh, he's taken an actions against this over the past two years, and he's continued to be clear. There is no place, no place for this type of vile and despite, despite this, this kind of rhetoric. And we hear you guys, though, talk about extremists all the time. It is usually about maggot extremists. So what about these protesters who are making Jewish I've students feel very, unsafe very on college campuses? Are they extremists? I've been very, very clear. We are calling out any form of hate any form of hate. It is not acceptable. It should not be acceptable here. And we are going to continue to call that out. And let, and let me be very clear. This is a president that has continued to have that fight in his office, in this administration. You know, when he repealed Trump's Muslim ban on his very first, first day in office, that is something that this president did. Uh, he also established an inter-policy committee to counter Islamophobia, anti-Semitism and related forms of bias and discrimination. We have taken this very, very, very seriously from the president all the way on down. That's a, that's a good testimony, a revealing testimony to woke politics. She's black. She's a woman. She's a lesbian. She gets three checks in the woke accounting book. She gets three checks. And she describes the protesters as being neo-Nazis, anti-Semites. Really? Can you hold up that picture again from Grand Central Station? Yeah, here are the, uh, here are the Nazis. Can't you see all the Nazis wearing the t-shirt that says, not in my name, which means they're all Jewish? And Jews, Jews say, ceasefire now? Right. Can't you see all the Nazis, all the anti-Semites? And why not throw in Holocaust deniers while you're at it? That, that to me, is the essence of woke politics. As Cornel West puts it, black faces in high places. That's all it is. That's all, all that it comes down to. And um, it's good. It's a good education. It's a good education. 
Does anyone know who the que- the guy asking the question is? I think he was from Fox. He's obviously a right winger. No idea. I don't watch television, so yeah. I, don't yeah. I have no idea. I'm going to have to take off because it's okay. 9.30 and I didn't even eat yet today. Oh, no. So. Well, wait, before you go, can I have you react to one more thing? It's very short. Sure. Please. I would be remiss. Okay, Brad, let's have my one of my favorite people making the case against the ceasefire. None other than my president. Hillary Clinton. Who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect rebuilding their uh, armaments, you know, creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh, an eventual um, assault by the Israelis. So we're in a very different world. I don't think it had to be the world we're in, but that's where we are, and we've got to figure our way uh, forward through it. Okay. If only she had been elected and it would have been a different world, it would have been like Libya. She did such a beautiful job in Libya. If only we had elected her into office, the whole world would be like Libya. In any event, as a person, as my uh, comrade and colleague, Maureen Rabani pointed out, first of all, it's not as if if there were a ceasefire, Israel wouldn't be gathering strength. Israel wouldn't be also trying to prepare for the next round. I'm not going to deny that, yes, Hamas will take advantage of it, but it's not as if Israel is just going to sit on its hands during that period. Secondly, a ceasefire, a humanitarian ceasefire is different than a peace treaty or a um, armistice because civilians are in a tragic situation. I don't want to say it's a tragic. Civilians are in a horrible situation. It's showing some humanity to the civilians who are suffering. So it's not as if somebody is saying you're going to end hostilities. Personally, I would want to end the hostilities, but that's not what a humanitarian ceasefire is. It's for people who are wounded who need medical care. It's to enable food, water, electricity, and fuel into Gaza. That's the purpose of humanitarian ceasefires. Even during the war in Vietnam, now you guys, I know the war Vietnam is like the War of the Roses. But during the war in Vietnam, there were humanitarian ceasefires, for example, during the Christ- at Christmas time. They called for a humanitarian ceasefire. That's not unprecedented. So uh, the refusal to even grant that, to mercilessly ground these people into dust, uh, I don't know. The, to my recollection, now I, I could be wrong about this, but this is uh, the first time I think that I know people are going to say, "What about the case of Rwanda and uh, and certain other cases?" But uh, where a state openly announces that it's engaging in a war of genocide. 
that's to me, it's quite unusual. It's also unusual uh, without going through the history because it will take us too much time. Before Operation uh, Cast Lead in 2008-9, and right after, the Israelis made a lot of very brazen statements, like Foreign Minister Tsipi Livni. She said, I ordered the people to carry on like hooligans. That's the expression. I ordered our soldiers to carry on like hooligans, and that's what they did. After Operation Cast Lead, the Israelis realized they have a problem. And the problem had a name. The name was Goldstone. Richard Goldstone had published this report which it said that Israel was guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity and possible crimes against humanity. And there looked like a real possibility it would go to the International Criminal Court. So Israel learned a lesson from that. The lesson was, don't say things like that in public. You know, you do it, but you don't say it. And so if you look at Operation protective edge in 2014, the Israelis made very few of any self-incriminating statements. But when it came to this, they thought now the ground was clear. They could say anything. And they went back to their old ways, which was essentially, effectively declaring a war of genocide against the people of Gaza. Uh, so that, uh, that was something new from the uh, operation since uh, Operation um, Cast Lead. But the same thing happened. It's a very remarkable thing, I have to say, when you watch it. Each time something like this happens, Israel has so much international support. If you remember during 2014, Barack Obama went out and said, Israel has the right to defend itself. Israel has the right to defend itself day in and day out. He kept saying that. Uh, but then public opinion turned against Israel. And the same thing happened again. It was so quickly that the reservoir that had of goodwill that had been... Uh, Create for Israel after October 7th, within <laughs> 10 days, it vanished again. It just vanished again because they're so murderous, so murderous in the way they carry on that whatever sentiment, feeling, commiseration, empathy you felt by October 7th, it all vanished by October 17th. It's like they're incapable, they're incapable of um, valuing that sympathy and immediately abuse it in ways which are frankly revolting and horrifying. I don't know where things are headed now, uh, but we're, we're, in a, we're in a very, a more difficult situation, I think, than in, at any point in the war in Ukraine, you know, we will have, uh, we will hear, I understand, but I could be wrong, uh, within a week from the Hezbollah, what they plan to do. And um, then all bets are off. All bets are off. Well, speaking of um, 
I, I can play this. You don't have to wait for this, but I'd be remiss if I didn't play Phoebe's new genocidal speech. Do you want to see it before? It'll be a good appetite suppressant. You won't be hungry. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible, and we do remember and we are fighting our brave troops and combatants who are now in Gaza or around Gaza and in all other regions in Israel are joining this chain of Jewish heroes, a chain that has started 3,000 years ago from Joshua ben Nun until the heroes of 1948, the Six-Day War, the 73 October war and all other wars in this country are hero troops. They have one supreme main goal to completely defeat the murderous enemy and to guarantee our existence in this country. We've always said never again. Never again is now. And by the way, just I don't so people think it's know, wise of him to invoke genocidal passages in the Old Testament. That's not, I think, a good tactic uh, in case he's brought before the International Criminal Court, which, of course, he won't be. And my last comment, uh, I know it's going to sound trivial by comparison, but on a sartorial note, on a sartorial note, I do not believe black suits Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah, it's true. Black suits, black does not suit Benjamin Netanyahu, and also do not quote a passage that says, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Right. As I said, not a wise passage in the Old Testament to quote. If you get what brought before the ICC, which, of course, will never happen. Nice, nice, nice to meet to talk to both of you. Thank you, Norman. You too. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have to go back to John Brown because I'm having a nice correspondence about him with Dr. Nice. Cornell West. Oh, nice. Very nice. Good man. Good man. Yeah. Both of you. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye, Norman. Dan, um, if you have a little bit more time. Yeah, I do. I do. And I had, I had a couple thoughts I want to share with it. Yeah. And I want to ask you about your latest little video about Ukraine, but share your thoughts first. I want to point out a little, I like show and tell a little bit. Behind me, you probably, do you see the El Aqsa Mosque behind me? It's, an, it's a painting. So that was done. I've been collecting Palestinian artwork for a while. I, I actually correspond directly with the artists in, in Palestine. And I sent them money, and then they send me the paintings. And so it's good. I love the paintings, and also it helps the family, so it's a double plus good. But anyway, I want to point out a, a, a couple things I have to say. So the woman who did those two paintings you see in the background, her name is Misa. Her sister, Heba, who was also an artist herself, um, I got to know because of her sister. And um, about, I don't know, it was 10 to 10 days to two weeks ago, she, she texted me and she said, I'm with my two children and the bombs are coming, I'm afraid. And all I said was, I'm so sorry. And I sent three little rose emojis. Anyways, I found out a day or so later, she and two of her children were killed. Two others are now orphans. I have another friend, Ola, 
beautiful woman lives in Gaza City who's a journalist herself. I don't know where she is. No one knows where she is. I have not heard from her in three or four days. And I fear the worst. In any case, for me, it's very personal. I, I, and I wanted to at least add to what Norm was saying. I think it's so important, you know, because we can just get buried and drown in misery in talking about this. And I, I do think these protests are important. I think they are making a difference. And maybe the difference is between, you know, 10,000 people dying and 50,000 people dying in the end. I don't know. But the point is, it's worth it to save that extra amount of people, you know. Um, and I do think that we have the power to do that. And that's why, you know, I confronted Fetterman. I mean, I'm trying to protest any way I can. I mean, I just can't watch these videos and um, that we're all watching and the babies being pulled out of rubble and whatnot and do something. But I thought Norm put it very, very well. And By the way, what, what was the paper you were trying to hand John Fetterman? There was a very short paper we did. It was a little leaflet that we did that was going through the, you know, basically what's happened, the water and electricity being cut off, thousands of people that died, the children that have died. It was a little information brochure, again, which he wouldn't take which is quite, it was disappointing. Let's just, let's just put it that way. I mean, his position on it has been disappointing. As someone responded to him, how many, how many people need to die before ceasefire is, is needed? Exactly. And while we know it could be a lot of people, um, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, again, what I'm seeing, the figure I guess I'm seeing now, the latest figure, I did hear 10,000 killed, but now I'm hearing maybe just 8,000 documented dead in Gaza, but you know, there's no way that that accounts for everyone. I mean, right? There are people still under rubble. Yeah, and and there's they haven't had water and food for three weeks. I was listening to uh, Electronic Intifada before I got in here, and they were saying um, they're down. They they have ten percent of the water that they had before this happened. I mean, can you imagine that? Um, it's going to be tens of thousands of people of people dead. And again, about half or so will be children. And it's just appalling. So, okay, but you had some questions too. Yeah, so what is the, I see that you had a video where you said there's more evidence that the U.S. killed peace in Ukraine. Yeah, the former chancellor of Germany. And I'm trying to remember his name. He was a social democrat. Schroeder, maybe? Ger Gerhard Schroeder. And I guess he's friends with Putin, so he... He was part, given his friendship with Putin, he was part of negotiations between, helping mediate negotiations between Putin and Zelensky. And he says that they had a deal in principle. We've heard this before, but he's corroborating that they had a deal in principle back in March or April of last year. So that would have been a month or two after the war had started, you know, for a, a, a total peace. And he said the U.S. intervened to stop it. And, of course, we know how they intervene. They intervene through their, um, you know, their puppet in, in, in the U.K., um, Boris Johnson, who went to Kiev and told Zelensky, don't sign that deal. Or I guess he might have even signed at least the outline of the deal, but he said don't abide by it. And uh, he's not the first person who said that. Actually, the other person I'm remembering saying it was, um, was an Israeli. Naftali Bennett. Natalie Bellin also said that because apparently he was involved in, in the negotiations. So I think it's pretty certain now 
that that war could have been over in one or two months. And can you imagine the hundreds of thousands of lives that would have been saved? And apparently all of Ukraine would have been saved as part of Ukraine. That is that apparently, according to that deal, Russia wouldn't have taken any territory. And that will that that deals off the table now. They will take the Donbass for sure. And you know, I've been in, to the Donbass twice in the last year. I've been there since the special military operations began. But that's another topic for another time. But um, you know, and this is this does follow this pattern. I mean, we you know uh, we know that Henry Kissinger acted behind the scenes in 1968 to kill a peace deal that Johnson was working on with the Vietnamese. Um, we know that uh, the Clinton administration twice killed peace deals in the former Yugoslavia that would have prevented the slaughter there. Um, and and uh, we know we know that the U.S. has prevented peace in Ukraine, and of course Biden's doing everything to prevent any sort of ceasefire or peace breaking out in the Middle East at this point. You know, it's a really, it's a very troubling thing um, that people need to be aware of, you know, um, and I hope, I hope they are. Tell us a little bit about your Donbass visits. What brought you there and what you saw and learned? Yeah, well, of course I went there because it's it's an important place to be, as, as, as Gaza would be right now, although Gaza would be, I, I would I would think almost impossible to get into. The Donbass was not as hard to get into, but it, it had its difficulties. Of course, I wanted to go to see what was happening. I went to Donetsk twice, and that's about uh, a 27-hour train ride from Moscow, which I took. And uh, once I drove it too, and um, that in itself was 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 quite an experience. But anyway, so I went to Donetsk twice which is in the Donbass. It's, it's one of the two republics, in addition to Luhansk, which held referenda in 2014 to become autonomous from Ukraine, not to join Russia, but to become autonomous. And, you know, it's very interesting to be there because the truth is, you know, it does not feel like an occupied place, you know, you know by the Russians. I mean, people by and large are glad the Russians are there because, as we know, as you and I know, Katie, uh, this war did not start last year. It started in 2014 when Kiev, the government in Kiev, began attacking its own people in the Donbass. And 14,000 people died before Russia began its special military operations in February of, of, of 2022. And, the, you know, the truth is the people there wanted Russia to intervene back then to protect them is the truth of it. And actually, interestingly, I met in Donetsk with the head of the Communist Party there. And he's the, he's the Donetsk, he's the leader of the Donetsk section of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which is the successor to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And um, he led, he was one of the leaders, he was in the parliament at the time, the, uh, and he led the referenda in 2014, the independence referenda. And he also was a leader in the um, in the referenda that happens in September of, la of last year, um, in which Donetsk and Luhansk and two other republics actually did then vote to go with Russia. And it was very interesting to speak with him about it, especially from his perspective as someone who a very old, an older gentleman who was part of the Soviet Union and was in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. It was just very interesting. And again, his view was that 
um, that Russia had to in intervene, at least in the Donbass, to to stop the imminent attack upon the Donbass. So you you probably know that, you know, two th things happened before. And it's not like Putin is a huge fan of the Communist Party, or the Communist Party is a huge fan of Putin, it should be noted, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's been very critical, particularly of Vladimir Lenin. People believe that Le it was Lenin's fault, that Lenin created Ukraine, that 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 the, he didn't have to do that, that they could have just... Kiev was the first, you know, capital of Russia. They like, Lenin just could have kept a part of Russia, but he wanted to have a more... You know, yeah, on the national question, he wanted to have these different national republics that kept their own languages, customs, etc., but that were part of one Soviet Union, right? But in any case, you're right. So they, they're, they're on, you know, the opposite poles on many things except this thing. They, they do agree on the, on the special military operations. In fact, it was the Communist Party of the Russian Federation that put the resolution in the Duma for Russia to recognize finally the two independent republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, in 2022. They hadn't recognized them up to that point. Russia had not recognized them as independent republics. Um, and they did, and that's what gave some of the legality, at least in the view of the Russians, to, to the intervention um, that, that followed it. And um, um, again, his view, well, I, I should say that Donetsk in particular, I didn't go to Luhansk, I can't speak a lot about it. Donetsk is very, very loyal to the to the Soviet era. I mean, a lot of people there, they don't consider themselves Russian or Ukrainian. They consider themselves Soviet people. And that's actually, Donetsk City has the second largest mass grave of the Nazis in the world. I didn't know that until I went there. I think 75,000 people they know are buried in this mass grave. It was, they were basically thrown down the piping of a factory in some alive of course so of course they have incredible memories of not of, of the nazi occupation of donetsk the nazis occupied a lot of russia and everyone there remembers that and they really believe they're fighting fascism now in fact they have a saying in donetsk so up till 1961 donetsk was known as stalino and then when khrushchev began his de-stalinization change his name back to Donetsk. Uh, but they have a saying, first Stalingrad, which of course in 1943 was when the Soviet Union, the very important battle in Stalingrad that really helped turn the tide against the Nazis and they began their retreat to Berlin. They said, first Stalingrad, now Stalino. That Stalino, AKA Donetsk, would now be where the fascists of Ukraine would be turned back. And again, that's the reality Americans they have no idea of that reality, that people, many people in that region think that way. And um, I'll just say two things that many Americans don't know, that, that two things happened right before Russia uh, began its special military operation. One, there was, and this is according to the Organization for European um, uh, Cooperate, what is it, OEC... Cooperation and Security, OECS, which has 57 members, including Western European countries. The U.S. is on it. Uh, up to uh, the, the last I saw, a German was the head of it. According to that organization, there were 2,000 ceasefire violations the weekend before Russia began the special military operations. 
between Kiev and Donetsk, or the Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk. And that was like a 30-fold increase over the recent period. So there's a massive increase of attacks by Kiev against the Donbass before the special military operations began. The other thing is there was a huge increase of troop movement of Ukrainian forces up to the border of the Donbass, which has been confirmed uh, by a number of people. And that's what was really the precipitating event for Russia to go in. And again, people are free to say that that, you know, to interpret whether that gave Russia any, any basis for going in. But the point is, those were the very real bases for, for Russia going in. And that's why the people, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, again, have a very different view of Russia than, than you know, obviously the people in Western Ukraine, um, for sure. And um, yeah, so it was an amazing experience. And uh, I love the people, Donetsk. I, I felt really close and bonded with them because, again, in, in part because of their historic connection to to the Soviet Union, which, you know, I'll be honest, was kind of a bright spot in my life. <laughs> again, a story for another day. You're talking an old, an old red here. But uh, so there you go, Katie. That That's my story, and I'm, I'm sticking to it. So Awesome. Anything else you want to bring up or talk about or respond to? That's probably it. You've been going for almost three hours, so you've been great. You've been patient and wonderful, and I hope to be on your show again. I just want to add one last thing. I will, because Norman said that, you know, you see Israel telegraphing a genocide, which is true. But what else have they telegraphed? They also telegraphed they're going to use chemical weapons against Hamas in the tunnels. Nerve gas, right? And remember when the world flipped out because... Uh, Assad allegedly used chemical weapons in Syria. Of course, as you know, especially from your good friend Aaron Mate, that you know they, there's a big dispute whether they really did that. But the point is, it was weird timing if he did. Yeah, yeah. Even the mere allegation of it set the world on fire. And now you have Israel just openly saying we're going to use nerve gas on Hamas, and no one's. Saying anything about it, yeah. No one, no one is saying a thing. And again, I just think that's something people need to keep in mind. I mean, the hypocrisy, the double standards yeah. are shocking. The white phosphorus also. And the white phosphorus that, again, Israel's That they lie about. Me. Well, at first they try to lie, and then uh, Human Rights Watch was like, no, you're using it. Yeah. And you can clearly see it in some of the videos and whatnot. And, of course, that causes cancer and other, other diseases. Um, so, yeah. But uh, it's an incredible thing. Uh, but, hey, I'm, I was glad to be on your show. Uh, really honored to be with you and, and with uh, Norm Finkelstein. And, you know, hey, I hope to be on uh, again. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. And good job interrupting, uh, trying to get Fetterman to look at your at the case for a ceasefire. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Again, as Norm said, we have to do everything we can to stop this war. And I, we have the power to do it. I really do think we have the power, or at least to make it less worse. And that's worth it. I mean, that's worse. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dan. And where can people find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik, K-O-V-A-L-I-K. You can also find my books at Skyhorse Publishing and on Amazon. I have a number of books there. I also write for Clarity Press. So those are probably the best places to find. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. 
Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.